Hey everybody, you're listening to Dead Ideas, the podcast of extinct thoughts and practices. Today, we're back with another segment of Public Domain Theater 3000, where we read public domain works because we can and no one can sue us for it. <laughs> uh, this time we've got an article from 1901, which is long after the time period that our series on miasma focused on, which was the late 17th century Italy. Uh, but this is from 1901. And we're finding that even in 1901, they're still having to argue against the theory of miasma as the source of disease. Remember, it wasn't really until the 19th century that the theory of miasma was dealt its death blow, and germ theory really became the widespread scientific and medically accepted theory for disease. But here in 1901, still, we're in the, we're in the 20th century now, and still, it's as if we still need to argue against miasma. So that's kind of interesting. It's not taken for granted that people, or maybe in this case, maybe it's the common people, at least, it's not taken for granted that people are totally on board with germ theory. You still have to argue against miasma and for germs. So, so yeah, this should be interesting. And uh, as usual, for the PDT3K series, I, I haven't looked closely at this, just enough to make sure that it's going to work for our topic here. So listeners, you and I are encountering this together, really. It's like here, I guess this, this is what I'm doing on a Sunday afternoon. <laughs> so welcome to my apartment. You might even, you might even hear my wife, uh, you know, hanging around in the background in other parts of the apartment, or the cat might come in. So anyway, join me here, specifically in my bedroom closet, because that's where I get the best sound quality. Kind of strange, but... <laughs> All right, so join me for an afternoon here. We're going to talk about miasma and germs in 1901. Okay, so this article comes from Muncie's Magazine. <laughs> I like, I love it already. Muncie's Magazine, 1901, August edition. Um, this is by Smith Eli Jeliff, MD, PhD. Okay, and it, it's entitled "Insects as Carriers of Disease." Wow, that's as if it was like newsflash: insects can carry disease. Uh, the subtitle is "How the Plague." Cholera, consumption, and malaria are spread by flies, mosquitoes, and other insects. Dash, uh, what can be done to guard against infection? Hmm. Yeah. So <laughs> it's as if this is this is fresh news in 1901. Okay. Well, let's dive in. Okay. So uh, Jellif writes. Until a quarter of a century ago, Imperial Satan... Uh, <laughs> uh, okay, so Satan... Um, until a quarter of a century ago, Imperial Satan was held personally responsible for most of the ills that Providence mysteriously permitted human beings to suffer. Today, the microbe is king of evil. Plagues and pestilences, pucks and murrhine... I do not know what marine is, uh, are laid to its door. Okay, so I guess he's just making a contrast between um, uh, like a demonic or religious explanation for disease before this, which is kind of interesting because that's not really what they said about miasma. Miasma was, I, none of my research said that it was some kind of spiritual evil. 
But in any case, um, he goes on. In the reign of Satan, the afflicted were perpetually asking why. Why should the just suffer with the unjust? Why should the devout man be smitten by smallpox regardless of his godliness? Why should the missionary contract cholera along with the unregenerate heathen? <laughs> uh, remember, this is before uh, multiculturalism really took hold as an idea and political correctness. The answer of modern science is by no means irreverent when it establishes the fact that prayer will not take the place of antiseptics and that the microbe is no respecter of persons. In this era of the microbe, the scientist is continually asking how, I guess so, not why, but how, how does the cholera blow out to sea and breathe death to a passing ship? How do the vapors of the stagnant marsh cause the blood to become full of malarial germs? How do cattle contract Texas fever by simply grazing in meadows where other sick cattle have been? How can one sore-eyed child in a little Florida schoolhouse give sore eyes to another child and to the whole community besides without leaving its bench? Hmm. Okay, so that's the introduction, and then he's got another section here entitled Mankind's Microscopic Enemies. Okay? The microbes of disease are such minute and inoffensive germs of life, they lie so innocently in little groups of pink and blue stained dots or scratches under the microscopist's 300 magnifying lens that we wonder how they can be capable of so much evil. Even though we accept the statistics that each one can run up into the billions every 24 hours, and that they devour the elements of human blood, leaving poisonous toxins behind, we cannot see how they can leap from one person to another, how they can jump across a river, or up three stories in the air, or survive boiling and sunlight and chloride of lime. I guess I wouldn't think they'd survive boiling either, unless they're super special. But anyway, that's what he said. The how question may be answered in almost the same words as the how of the botanists, who used to wonder how the pollen of plants got from one blossom to another. It has long been evident that just as the pollen of the pine could be blown from tree to tree, so the germs of consumption could be carried by the wind and just as the coconuts of the palm could be washed down rivers to fertile beaches, so could the germs of typhoid travel by water from village to village. Hmm. So he's using the technique of analogy to lots of things that his readers apparently would think uh, would be familiar with. So yeah, it really does seem like he's arguing per to persuade, to persuade that germs are the cause of these diseases. Okay, he goes on. But only recently has discovery been made that air and water are not the sole carriers of disease. And remember, air and water were two things that came up big time in our series on miasma. Um, miasma being mutated atoms of air and water. It was never really clear how the water worked theoretically with the mutated atoms of air, but it was, well, marshy water was thought to be one of the things that mutated the air in the first place. Anyway, 
it was a vague theory. Okay, so he goes on. <clears throat> In such diseases as cholera, whose germs are killed by air and sunlight, in spite of every precaution with food and water, cases would break out in places where no cholera patient had been. It seems that microbes had wings and could fly around the world if they chose. The explanation was that the microbes can borrow wings. Hmm. The mysterious power of some pestilences to spread like wildfire across a continent is undoubtedly due to the fact that insects are carriers of disease. I guess those are the wings he's talking about. According to Darwin, the insect travelers that sip nectar from the flowers wipe out their score by doing light porter work and carrying pollen from one blossom to another. But alas, there are hosts of insects not so refined who feast on all sorts of abominable things and in consequence carry the microbes of disease from one person to another. Travelers in Egypt tell us that in the summer it is no unusual thing to see the flies settling on the eyelids of the little sore-eyed children who are so used to these pests that they make no effort to drive them away. If the pollen can be carried on the legs and antennae of insects, the minute germs of the infectious, infectious discharge of Egyptian ophthalmia, that must be the sore-eyed disease, can be transported quite as easily. The similar disease of the eyes in Florida is spread, they say, by a little gnat that does not bite nor even settle, but that flies teasingly in the face, causing people to rub their eyes. When sore eye appears in gnat time, the disease literally takes to itself wings. Next section, he entitles it, How Flies Carry Disease. Okay. From the days of Pharaoh... Oh, he loves his biblical references. Okay, so from the days of Pharaoh, when the plague of flies was followed by the death of the firstborn in every household, there have been many shrewd guesses at the relationship of flies to disease. The people of Holland have a saying, Invligenjar in zikinjar. Uh, and that sage observer, doctor and philosopher of London, is he not going to translate this for us? He expects us to understand Dutch? <laughs> um, and that sage observer, doctor and philosopher of London in the 17th century, Thomas Sydenham, laid down the rule that if swarms of insects, especially houseflies, were very abundant in summer, the following autumn was likely to be exceedingly unhealthy. Now, the housefly has always been considered a troublesome but exceedingly useful pest. The housewife is perpetually told that, were it not for its scavenging propensities, the world would be a much dirtier place than it is. But modern science is very emphatic in its assertion that, with good plumbing and plenty of soap, water, and sunlight, the housekeeper can very well dispense with the assistance of flies. It was a tradition in the Middle Ages that the Great Death, I mean, think he means the Black Death, which we now know as the Bubonic Plague, okay, yeah, Black Death, was heralded by frequent changes in the weather, by fog and rain, by meteors, and by swarms of flies. That's very interesting that he includes meteors and weather, which is exactly what they would have thought back then. It was, it was all things at the sky, right? Of course, now we know it's rocks from space falling to Earth, but whatever. 
changes in the weather. And that totally fits, of course, with the miasma theory of disease, where miasma comes from mutated air. And astrological signs could be strangely something that could mutate the air into miasma, which was, I don't know how that was supposed to work, but whatever. Okay, he goes on. However it may have been with the meteors, we realize now that the flies were not thrown in for effect. When atmospheric conditions were favorable to the breeding of the flies, the few cases of plague that always persisted in certain places had millions of winged emissaries to spread the germs, and the result was one of the epidemics that wasted countries and depopulated towns. Only half a century ago, the city of Benghazi in Tripoli lost two-thirds of its population. The fact that this particularly filthy little town, oh, <laughs> apologies to modern-day Benghaziites, uh, has been nicknamed the Kingdom of Flies, oh, double apologies, has peculiar significance for us in the light of experiments that have been made to find out just what relation these insects bear to the spread of disease. To prove that flies, as well as men and animals, were able to contract the plague, a certain number of insects were allowed to feed on the crushed organs of an animal that had died of it, while an equal number of flies were fed on similar organs of a healthy animal. Hmm, okay, that seems like a reasonable scientific methodology with a control group and everything. In several repetitions of this experiment, all the infected flies were dead at the end of six or seven days, while nearly all of the other flies were alive. All the dead flies had the living germs of the plague in their intestines. In plague-stricken countries where there are no sewers, no garbage laws, and no sanitation, where dead animals lie unburied, where families live and eat and sleep in the same room, it is logical to conclude that the flies, the only natural scavengers, should become infected and should, in the few days that elapse before they die, infect all the food they light on. Next section he entitles, How the Great Death Travels. Flies are not the only insects that carry the plague. Ants and fleas are just as dangerous. In India, when a rat dies of the plague, his body is promptly eaten by ants. To prove that the insects contract the infection, an experimenter dipped the point of a needle in their excreta, their shit basically, and with it pricked some living rats and mice, which he kept carefully in cages. They in turn died of the plague. You know, this is... I thought that the plague bacillus actually has to inhabit a specific species. I, I don't think ants is one of them. I could be wrong, but this might be something that later turned out not to be true. But nevertheless, this is the proof that he's giving in 1901. So, they died of the plague. Uh, that such a slight thing as a pinprick is enough to allow the germs to enter the body of a human being is shown by the case of the two Japanese physicians who scratched themselves with the points of their instruments while making autopsies on plague patients and immediately took the disease. Ooh, that, that's kind of a nice little fuck up there. <laughs> Yuck. When we find an insect that punctures the skin in addition to carrying the germs, we have an almost perfect means of inoculating men and animals. This is what the flea probably does. Dead rats and mice have always been associated with the history of the plague ever since the days when the Israelites were smitten with a pestilence for having disobeyed the Lord by going into the camp of the Philistines, 
and when four golden mice appeared with the propitiatory offerings. But it now seems to be not the rats and mice themselves, but the fleas, which swarm upon them when they are too sick to rid themselves of the insects that are the active agents in spreading the disease. And as far as I researched, I think that part is accurate. The flies ride the rats, and then the uh, plague bacillus is in the fleas. Okay, so, it has been noticed that natives who remove rats soon after their death are frequently stricken with the plague, whereas if the rats are allowed to lie for 24 hours, they may be handled with safety. Oh, I didn't know that. The probable explanation of this is that the fleas leave the rats soon after they are dead and attach themselves to other animals or to people. In the dirty and crowded quarters of the poor in the eastern home of the plague, it is fatal to scratch. The dreaded buboes, or swellings, frequently appear first at the point of irritation caused by the bite of a flea, and the lively insect is probably the means of establishing that mysterious death connection between man and the lower animals. In view of this possibility, it would be a wise precaution during epidemics to throw scalding water on dead rats before they are removed and to protect plague patients with mosquito netting so that no insects can spread their malady. Well, that's interesting. Usually you use mosquito netting to keep the mosquitoes out, but it sounds like, in this case, they might be talking about keeping them in. So the mosquitoes bite the plague patients, uh, get the plague bacillus in them, but then can't leave to infect anybody else. That's what I read in that anyway. <clears throat> Next section, flies and cholera. Some 50 years ago, an American war vessel was at sea for nearly six months with cholera on board. The disease gradually diminished, and the flies, which had started with the craft in swarms, had died off, so that there was comparative freedom from the visible and invisible pests. On dropping anchor in Malta Harbor, however, the disease again broke out violently, and yet there had been absolutely no connection with the shore except through the flies that swarmed out to the ship. Another of the vagaries of cholera is reported from a prison in India, where the men all took the disease, while the women, who were quartered on the opposite side of a high wall, escaped. The men's quarters, it seems, were in the path of a breeze that blew from some huts where natives were ill of cholera, and with the breeze came flies, which never went over the wall but settled on the milk and food of the prisoners. This happened within recent days, and the microscope showed that the milk from which the flies had sipped was swarming with cholera germs. Hmm. The shrewd guesses of the sailors who associated the outbreak of cholera with flies, and the scientists' assertion that a single fly can, in one day, infect a quart of milk with a hundred colonies of cholera germs to each drop, lead us to condemn the carelessness of people who allow flies to have access to food and filth at the same time. The fatalistic Orientals... Oops, uh, remember that this is 1901. Uh, no PC language here. The fatalistic Orientals are no worse than the highly educated Occidentals, meaning Western people, who are proud of their progress. What can we say of the carelessness that is shown on every hand in cases of typhoid fever and consumption? In a military camp near New York some three years ago, 
everything in the tents where the typhoid patients lay was exposed to myriads of flies. Everything in the kitchen and dining tents not far distant was also open to the flies. To say that they passed back and forward was to put it mildly. They settled in swarms on soiled linen, utensils, everything that had been brought from the patient's bedsides to be disinfected, and they winged their way with death on their feet to the soldier's food to spread the disease through the camp. So one of the things that I find interesting about this writing at the time is um, it's very visual. And, you, could, you know, this is a time before TV, before radio even, and uh, I think 1901 before radio, right? Anyway, um, so you really, you have, y y this is your entertainment, and also this guy's trying to convince not scientific experts, but the average person, it seems like. Um, so you have to appeal to the senses, and yeah, this is a very visual, I could, this is really cool. Okay, next section. Tuberculosis and Texas fever. I've never even heard of Texas fever. Anyway, here we go. There is undoubtedly as much danger of contracting some form of tuberculosis through flies as there is of contracting cholera. Sounds like he's speculating. Uh, I wonder if that ended up being true. We can look it up later, I guess. The white death, as this most fatal disease is called, does not seem to horrify us as it should because it is so slow, so varied in its forms, and so hard to trace to its origin. The germs are constantly entering by the stomach to cause white swelling, curvature of the spine, hip disease, and decline. But how? Oh, that's hip disease. I don't even know. <laughs> the milk supply has been carefully watched since it was discovered that cattle often have tuberculosis, tuberculosis and that milk is a favorite medium for the germs to grow in. We may license our cows, but who will license the flies? For they too have tuberculosis. In every instance when a fly caught in a consumptive's room has been examined, germs were found in its body. Now consumption and tuberculosis, I'm pretty sure, are the same thing, if I remember right. So I think it's synonyms there. So consumptive is a person with tuberculosis. Okay. It needs no elaborate argument to make it plain that every single fly, as it goes to the kitchen for its next meal, will add a few germs to the food of the family, and that somewhere, probably in the body of a little child, the infection may take effect. The fiat should go forth, in any case of typhoid and consumption, that not a fly should be permitted on the premises under pain of death. Okay, so the housekeeper who's talking about before now has a pretty... It's charged with a pretty serious role here. Under pain of death, I think that's her hyperbole, I hope. <laughs> Housekeepers, <laughs> get your fly swatters out or you're going to be executed. Okay. The housefly is not the only messenger of evil. For we learn that in Africa there is a certain insect called the tsetse fly that is the evil genius of certain lowlands known as the fly country. Oop, this sounds like a sci-fi movie. You should have, like, Jeff Goldblum in it or something. Livingstone and other traders used to report the mysterious loss of their mules in these regions, and then they found that all animals, cattle, sheep, dogs, and cats, were affected by this disease, which the natives called Nagana. As soon as bacteriologists began to investigate, they found a parasite in the blood of the sick animals. 
They also found that the wild animals of the wood had the same disease and that a pricked drop of blood from a wild animal injected into a healthy tame animal would cause it to fall sick of Nagana. But how the contagion took place, lacking a surgical operation, they could not see. Finally, the tsetse fly was proved guilty, for when these flies were tied up in gauze bags, brought out of the fly country into a new and healthy region, and allowed to alight on animals, they promptly gave these latter the disease. Hmm. The problem of Texas fever in cattle, which was assuming such serious proportions, is now all centered on methods of dealing with the tick that buries itself in the hide, for experiments have proved that the tick is the only means of transmitting the fever from one animal to another. Grass carried from fever fields did not make cattle fall sick. Sick cattle from which all the ticks had been carefully picked could herd with other cattle and never a new case. But let a herd of wild cattle be turned to graze alone in a field where Texas fever cattle had grazed before, and as soon as the infected ticks fastened on the animals, they would fall sick. Even ticks hatched in an incubator from the eggs of a tick taken from a sick animal could transmit the fever to healthy cattle. This is extra interesting to me because, well, first of all, we've gone from Africa now to someplace much closer to home of this person's audience, probably, Texas fever, and also cattle in 1901 was still big, big business. I guess it's still big today, but it would be even bigger then. Okay, next section. Mosquitoes and malaria. But of all insects that spread infection, the mosquito is the one that has most surprised science by turning out to be the carrier of malaria. Stagnant water, swampy lands, night mists, upturned ground, and miasma, mm -hmm, all of which have been regarded as causes of the disease, have proved to be but fav favorable conditions for certain common mosquitoes to breed, and the theory has finally been formulated. No mosquitoes, no malaria. Yeah, so there's our mention of miasma in this article. There are references to it before, but comes right out and says it there. But anyway, he's saying, it's not miasma, it's mosquitoes. No mosquitoes, no malaria. Okay. Koch, and if I remember right, I think Koch was the guy, K-O-C-H, I think he's the guy who uh, proved that the anthrax bacillus was, you know, the cause of anthrax was a germ. I, I think that was him, Robert Koch, if I want to say it. All right. Koch says that the mountain Negroes in East Africa guessed this fact long ago. Uh, again, no PC language here. For when they go down to the plains, they say that they get a disease called Mbu, M-B-U. Um, not sure how to pronounce that. From certain insects of the same name, which sting them and cause them to fall sick. It is interesting to find that the insect Mbu is the mosquito, and the disease mbu is malaria. In the light of the mosquito-malaria theory, many of the fanciful precautions of travelers in the tropics turn out to be eminently practical. Some have asserted that the quote-unquote miasma could not be breathed through a gauze veil. Emin Pasha held to the tradition that malaria could not pass through the mosquito nets and always took a pair of curtains with him when traveling in Africa. The jivas of the Punjab, which is a region of northern India, I believe, 
who fish and catch wild fowl in reedy and malarial marshes, say that they never get the disease, though they stay in their boats all night long because they wrap themselves at sunset in a peculiar costume which covers them from head to foot, and they always keep a smoldering fire in the boat. In other words, they're keeping the mosquitoes away, I believe. That's the implication. Though many persons believe that malaria entered by the skin, like the Russian physician who said that he had never contracted the disease in malaria, malarial countries because he had always slept in a mask and gloves, yet it never seemed to occur to physicians that it was the mosquito that punctured the skin and jabbed the germs into the blood. Now that the connection between mosquitoes and malaria is established, it is easy to see that all the accumulated experience concerning the habits of the disease would apply just as well to the insect. It is common in summer, especially in wet summers, and it almost dies out in winter. It is frequent in the open country and suburbs and is seldom found in the center of large cities. It is more dangerous by night than by day, but a fire will keep it off. It is likely to attack anyone who sleeps out of doors, especially on the ground. Any or all the conditions that raise a crop of mosquitoes will scourge a community with malaria, providing the mosquitoes are of the right species and have already bitten anyone with the malarial germs in his blood. The next section, the proof of the mosquito theory. I also like how all these section titles are, they have a period <laughs> at the end and it's in all caps. I don't know, it just seems very of the times. Okay. The actual demonstrable proof of the mosquito malaria theory took place in the Roman Campania, that's a region in Italy, last summer when an English royal commission made a test experiment. These scientific men created for themselves what they called the Mosquito Hut, a severely simple house whose chiefest attribute, chiefest, chiefest attribute was that it was mosquito-proof. There they lived and worked through the whole three months of the Roman summer in the midst of the most pestilential weather. Cases of malaria were on every side of them, but none of the party fell ill. Okay, well, that's not exactly a very scientific experiment, but I guess you know, they didn't die. That's at least anecdotal evidence. To prove the reverse of the experiment, a few of the mosquitoes from the neighboring marshes, which had smelt the blood of an Englishman, <laughs> uh, fee-fi-fo-fum reference there, but had been rigorously debarred from a taste of it, were carried to London. There, the son of Dr. Manson, who started the expedition, allowed himself to be bitten by the hungry travelers. He had never had malaria, and had never been in a malarial country, but in due time, he came down with a severe and typical attack of Roman fever. He just let himself be infected with malaria? What? <laughs> He's like, look, I've got malaria now. Oh, okay. Um, that's, I guess that's dedication to science and medicine. Uh, okay. While scientists have been proving that mosquitoes carry malaria... The microscope has been busy discovering how they do it. Entomologists, laboratory workers, bacteriologists, and physicians have contributed their experience and researches with the result that we find that each of the three or four different kinds of malarial or intermittent fevers has its parasite in blood, and each has its own species of mosquito, 
which not only carries the parasite to other victims, but is essential for its complete development and reproduction. Hmm. For instance, when a dapple-winged mosquito bites a person suffering with estivo-autumnal or southern malaria or Roman fever, oh, sorry, that's estivo-autumnal, interesting, okay, whatever, uh, these being different names for the same form of the disease, it sucks in blood filled with little crescents. Mm -hmm. In the insect's stomach, they undergo a marvelous change. Oh, the crescents, okay. The crescents are like the bacillus in certain phase of its development. In the insect's stomach, they undergo a marvelous change, swelling up, fusing together, and reproducing swarms of new curved rods, which finally reach the little creature's salivary gland and are injected into every wound it makes in the human body. As soon as these parasites enter the human blood, they multiply enormously. Each curved rod becomes a crescent, curling up in a blood corpuscle and ultimately destroying it. Just as the meadows break forth with daisies at a certain time in spring, so at a certain stage of development these crescent parasites all break in two and push the new ones out of the blood corpuscles. Wow, there's an image for you. The body at this juncture has a paroxysm called a chill. Paroxysm, I think that's like a, oh man, paroxysm is something like a like an attack. Um, and in our series, upcoming series on hysteria, that's going to feature in a very interesting way, but I won't give it away. So anyway, it's kind of like maybe a seizure or the body is gripped by kind of convulsions, I think, in a paroxysm. Okay. The body at this juncture has a paroxysm called a chill, followed by a fever, which latter is probably the result of the onslaught of the white blood corpuscles trying to carry away the parasites. Well, a chill doesn't sound like a convulsion, so anyway, I'm not sure what they mean by paroxysm here, but they partially succeed, but the process of multiplication goes on until the number is up to the limit again and there is another chill, and so on, until quinine, which for some reason acts as a poison to these infinitesimal organisms, is administered in sufficient quantity to put its quietus on the whole batch. Hmm. Quinine yeah, as a treatment for malaria. Malarial patients who live in a mosquito-haunted district infect every mosquito that bites them, and they in turn infect everybody whom they bite. In countries where there is a great deal of malaria, crows, pigeons, and larks have an ailment closely resembling malaria, which they get by being bitten by mosquitoes at the molting time. Molting is when the birds uh, lose their feathers, I think. Many animals have a disease that shows the same sort of germs in their blood. It may therefore be quite possible that some bird or animal keeps the malaria germs going for the benefit of the chance explorer who penetrates parts unknown and finds mosquitoes and malaria awaiting him. Hmm, that sounds fun. Alright, next section. The war against the mosquito. When it becomes a question of defensive measures against insects, and incidentally, against the diseases they may carry, our learned friends, the bacteriologists, are glad to go to housewives and cowboys, or to anyone whom practical experience has taught to avoid these pests. <laughs> okay, so we're writing for housewives and cowboys, all right. Uh, for houseflies, the combination of cleanliness, screens, 
flypaper and poison is a pretty safe one. But if there is a stable nearby, the fly larvae and pupae will breed in the manure, and unless it is placed in covered pits or sprinkled with lime, and the stable floor is sprinkled with petroleum, there will never be an end to the flies. As for fleas, one author suggests a brilliant method of catching them that might be serviceable to travelers who pray for quiet sleep in strange hostelries. He made his servant tie sheets of sticky paper around his legs and then walk through the rooms that were to be occupied. <laughs> so, uh, okay, so I'm, now I'm remembering back to our miasma series where we were laughing at the cures suggested for the plague based on miasma theory, which one of them was like sticking a chicken's anus on the plague bubo. <laughs> and of course it seems so absurd to us, but now imagine somebody from 17th century Italy being told, no, wrap your legs in sticky paper, <laughs> and then walk around the rooms that you want to walk occupy. <laughs> that must have been, ah, oh, would have been absurd, as absurd as us looking back on them. Ah, uh, okay. The hungry and unsuspecting fleas leaped forth with eager greetings to the stranger, and his master slept well that night. Gnats and mosquitoes are so common that we are tempted to think that the altar fires of the ancients, always offered to the gods on coming to any new place, may have been closely allied to smudges. Uh, I wonder... So I know that today in some circles, like a smudge is where you uh, kind of purify someone before a ritual with sage smoke. So I wonder if that's what he means by smudges. We know that the Minotaur the monster which demanded a certain number of Athenian youths and maidens as its victims every year, was but a personification of the deadly malaria of Greece and Italy. Oh, we just know that. Yeah, <laughs> okay. Oh, we know this is a fact. Hmm. And now that we discover the mosquito's relation to the disease, we may wonder whether that small insect had anything to do with the fire worship of the ancients. Maybe, maybe unconsciously, or just by... By chance, it could have contributed to carrying on that practice. It's possible. The surest relief from insect swarms in the woods is the method used by the Hudson Bay Company. Pyrethrum powder is moistened, shaped into little cones like a chocolate drop, and dried in an oven. When these are burned in a tent or room, they smolder slowly and stupefy all insects, which fall to the floor and may be swept up and burned. For personal relief, the woodsman will neglect any part of his toilet sooner than his tar oil for his face and hands, and if he has work to do, he will set his birch bark smudges where the breeze will blow the fumes toward him. Okay, so a smudge is definitely smoking, yeah, some kind of smoke. And by toilet here, I think he's, you know, I've always heard of a woman's toilet as being like the mirror that she um, put on her makeup in front of. And so here, I think it's not, he doesn't mean his crapper. He means the woodsman's, where he takes care, grooms himself, basically. Okay. The chief insect problem for the coming years is the extermination of the mosquitoes in malarial neighborhoods. To keep them out of houses, the first thing is to screen the doors and windows, and then to make a daily round of each room with that most efficient of homemade traps, a tin can cover nailed like a shallow saucer on the end of a broomstick and filled with kerosene. Hmm. This being elevated to the ceiling, 
and held for a second under each clinging mosquito causes him to be overcome with the fumes of the oil and to fall into the trap. Wow, we're just, this is amazing little insight into the ways that people fought mosquitoes back then. <laughs> that was really cool, actually. If no one ever made excursions out of doors after nightfall, without the gauze veil and the jiva fisherman's costume, malaria would soon become extinct. But the problem can scarcely be solved in that way. The suburban dweller who considers the imputation of mosquitoes and malaria a slander on his property must organize a relief committee and see that every water barrel is covered, that every rain hollow is filled up with earth, that every little pond is drained off, that every brook runs free, and that every larger pond is stocked with fish to eat up the pupae and larvae. Then he must start a subscription for petroleum, gallons, nay, hogsheads. <laughs> what? How much? <laughs> what's, the, what's the exchange ratio of a hogshead to a gallon? <laughs> I don't know. Okay. Gallons, nay, hogsheads he will require of petroleum. Uh, and the surface of all the water in the neighborhood must be sprayed with it once a month throughout the summer. Okay, this is not... <laughs> this is, Not only in this, is this prior to PC uh, language, but this is also kind of behind, before environmentalism proper. <laughs> I would like to see a study of the environmental impact if you actually did all this. Okay. $5 worth will treat 100,000 square feet, covering it with a thin layer which prevents the young from breathing and the female from laying her eggs. Petroleum is, up to the present day, the most effective and indeed the only known sure slayer of the mosquito, and therefore the only true preventive of the ravages of malaria. And that's the end of the article. Okay, just, just to forestall anything, listeners out there who are interested in DIY stuff, please don't put gasoline on your, uh, out, out where, on nature, anywhere, on your campsite, on your farm, whatever. Um, it should go without saying, but I'm interested to know what form petroleum would have been at the time. I mean, is he talking about crude oil? Is it refined in some way into something? Is it like petroleum jelly? that people would have been using? I don't know in 1901 what petroleum exactly would have meant as some as a product available to housekeepers and to cowboys and, and whatnot. And, but apparently you can get it in hogsheads. <laughs> Gallons nay hogsheads. I don't know. If ever our civilization manages to break its addiction to fossil fuels, we will now have a reason to keep petroleum around, I guess. <laughs> okay, so that is our article for today. That was interesting, yeah. So the, we investigated, you know, the miasma theory of disease, the idea that it's mutated atoms that, that transmit the disease, that transmit diseases, and in particular, the plague. And here, even in 1901, they're still trying to persuade people that it's not miasmal atoms that transmit disease. They're making cases to the common person, to housekeepers and cowboys, that it's actually insects. And they have to be persuaded. That's just the most interesting thing. Yeah, but it makes total sense because this was new. This was new. It was only like the mid-1800s that germ theory really became dominant even in the scientific community and the medical community. And then these things take time to filter. So it makes total sense. It makes total sense. Hmm. 
And interesting again that it's just the writing of this time is so visual. Yeah. Anyway, so that's our article for this time uh, for PDT3K, Public Domain Theater 3000. Um, I found this one again from unz.org, an amazing depository of all this stuff. So I hope you had fun today. I certainly did. I'm going to leave my closet now and behave like a normal person walking around my apartment. <laughs> so, all right. Uh, I'm BT Newberg, and this is Dead Ideas. I'll see you next time. Thank you. Hey, everybody. Thanks so much for listening. Hey, I want to say a big thank you to all of our listeners out there because downloads are picking up, and it is really exciting to see more and more of you out there finding us and liking what we're doing. I mean, we're just in this for the fun and the beer, and so we hope you're enjoying yourselves too, so it's awesome to see you out there finding us. And also, we're continuing to pump out portraits as the reviews keep pouring in. Thank you if you've reviewed us. We will get your portrait to you just as soon as we can. Everybody else, you can be next. Just review us wherever, iTunes, Stitcher, Facebook, whatever, we don't care. And then email us at deadideaspod at gmail.com with your choice of historical time period and culture and a photo we can work from. Your review should be honest whether you say we're awesome or whether you say we suck. We will draw you. Just review us somewhere and we'll make it happen. And next week, we've got something special coming up. I won't give it away, but I'll just say we have some new co-hosts who will be joining us for a special spooky episode. All right, everybody, see you then.